Well, let me invite you uh, this morning to open your Bibles uh, with me to Acts chapter 6. And we'll be uh, continuing our study in uh, Luke's uh, marvelous history of the growth of the early church through the power of the Holy Spirit preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, In Acts chapter 6, we'll pick it up starting in verse 8 and uh, be mindful that... uh, They have just chosen the seven to deal with this conflict that arose within the early church about the Hellenistic widows not being served food. So uh, they chose the seven, and uh, Stephen was uh, mentioned as one of the seven in verse 5, and he was kind of like a shooting star across the uh, horizon in his role with the seven. But now Luke uh, puts the spotlight directly on this uh, godly uh, man and now zooms in on him. And from verse 8 all the way through the end of chapter 7 is going to be about uh, this uh, godly man, Stephen. So we'll uh, pick it up here in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And since I'm reading the inspired Word of God, not the Word of man, please give very careful attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. That would be the Sanhedrin. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. And may God bless the reading of his word. Well, Stephen is one of the uh, great men of the book of Acts. And again, it's... uh, It's the intention of Luke, the author, is to put the spotlight on on Stephen because there are many things that we need to learn from this man's life. Uh, Stephen will actually give the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. Basically, all of Acts chapter 7 will be Stephen's defense of his own uh, character before the Sanhedrin. So he'll give the longest sermon He will also be the very first martyr for Christ in the church. So what we know so far, as we read in verse uh, 7, that the word of God is spreading, the disciples are increasing, sinners are being saved, 
and Satan is plotting his attack. But the Holy Spirit will put forth one of his choice champions found in this young man. This I don't know exactly how old he was, but this man, Stephen. And though he will be defeated physically, he will gloriously triumph spiritually. And though they kill him, he will win the crown. And oh, that the church today in America had more champions like Stephen, godly men and women willing to to stand up against whatever the world or Satan or own flesh says and oppose it standing on the truth of the Word of God. Because those are the people that God uses to advance His kingdom. People like Stephen. People like him that we need to learn to imitate by the grace of God. I'm reminded of Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, where it says that they overcame Satan because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of His testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. And you can write Stephen's name all over that verse. And earlier in Revelation chapter 2, Christ spoke to the church of Smyrna and said, Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. And Stephen earned that crown by his faithfulness to Jesus Christ in this passage. What I'd like for us to do is begin by looking at Stephen's character. And uh, for us to do that, we really need to back up to verse 5, where he is actually uh, mentioned among the seven. And notice what it says about him in verse 5. The statement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Time and all the others. But Stephen is specifically described as being a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. This uh, quality of being full of faith, I think, is a very interesting uh, quality that uh, we should all strive after with God's help. Stephen was a man who was full of faith and he had great faith which enabled him to do great things. Stephen had trusted Christ alone to save him from his sins. He believed that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah who is now on the scene bringing in his kingdom that he died to satisfy God's judgment for our sin and rose on the third day to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament and is now seated at the Father's right hand. He believed in all of that. He was a man full of faith. But what's interesting is that the Bible speaks of faith in the sense that we can all have varying amounts of faith. Uh, some people have weak faith, the Bible says. Some people have strong faith. So our faith can can vary. We have differing amounts of faith. The disciples during the, the Lord's earthly ministry habitually suffered from weak faith. Uh, there are four times in Matthew's gospel where the Lord Jesus rebukes his disciples with being men of little faith. Oh, you of little faith is how he rebuked them. We see this weak faith fail miserably, particularly when Peter denied the Lord three times in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest. 
But on the other hand, you can find people who have great faith. And interestingly enough, in the Gospels, they're always Gentiles. They're never Jews. For example, uh, the Roman centurion was imploring Jesus to heal his servant in Matthew chapter 10 and said, you don't even, even need to go there because, you know, I have men under authority and you have authority over all that just speak the word. And Jesus responded to him and, and saying that he had a great faith and he had not found such faith in Israel. And then you have that Gentile Canaanite woman who wanted her demon-possessed daughter healed. And Jesus said, well, we don't give the, the children's bread to the dogs. You remember that? And yet she responded in Matthew chapter 15, but Lord, even the dogs feed on the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And the Lord was touched and moved. And He pronounced that she had a great faith. So some people have great faith. Some people have small faith. And uh, I think it's the weak faith that struggles in the area of trusting the Lord in troubling circumstances. Part of the reason why I think Stephen is described here as being a man of full, full of faith, because don't, don't raise your hand or anything, but how many of us this morning feel like that right now at this moment we're full of faith? And I think the reality is we realize that most time we're not, that we struggle, that sometimes we're more described as having a weak faith than a strong faith. And let me kind of develop this just for a couple of minutes. But a weak faith, the opposite of being like Stephen, means that we are weak oftentimes in the area of trusting the Lord in troubling and trying circumstances. A weak faith will struggle in trusting God on a day-to-day basis for all the hassles and all the pressures and stresses of life that come our way. A weak faith will result in a life that is more easily shaken by the circumstances of life. A weak faith is more susceptible to temptation and sin. A weak faith is more prone to discouragement and times of spiritual darkness and and the loss of the assurance of our salvation. A weak faith will experience less joy and less peace and less contentment in life. And living with a weak faith is like driving around in your car perpetually with that little, that little uh, gas pump handle that lights up on your dash telling you that you're about to run out of gas and it just kind of fills you with a, a anxiety. And a weak faith just lives with that anxiety just kind of all the time. And if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times we all struggle with weak faith. And reading about Stephen being full of faith, the key to that, I think, is that Stephen was full of Christ and full of Christ's promises. And basically, he's full of the Word of God. A full faith will never be full if it's not full of the Word of God. That's for sure. And one of the keys to sanctification is that faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The Word of Christ. And Stephen was a man who was full of faith because he was full of the Word of God. And actually, when we get to his sermon in Acts 7, you're going to just see how well he knew the Scriptures. 
But in spite of trying circumstances, in spite of the troubles of life that come our way on a regular basis, a full faith, one who is full of faith, will believe and trust in Christ and the promises of Scripture and find victory over those struggles. Some of the things a full of faith individual will will believe and trust is that God loves you as a believer in Christ because the Bible says that. Even though my circumstances may make me wonder, where is God? God doesn't love me or He wouldn't let this happen. No, no. Full of faith, I believe what Scripture says. Regardless of the providence which is frowning and raining on my parade that I'm struggling with, I'm going to believe Scripture. A man or a woman full of faith will also believe that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. That we stand justified in His sight. That the blood of Christ has forgiven me not just of some of my sins, not just my past sins, but all of my sins have been forgiven because He paid the price for them all. A full of faith believer will will be one who believes and trusts that God, when He says that He will provide for you, that He will provide for your needs. That when He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that He will always be near you. He'll always be close to you. Even though you may feel like the psalmist oftentimes experienced at times that, oh God, where are you? You're distant from me. And yet the full of faith will come to, to, to God in those promises and he'll, he'll build His life upon the rock there. The full of faith individual will will believe that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. Because oftentimes Satan just beats me on the head with my sin and my failure. And he's saying, you're not going to go to heaven. You're not even a Christian. God doesn't love you. Who could love such a sinner like you? And yet those are the very kinds of people that God loves. And the Scripture says that God loves His own and nothing will separate us from the love of God. And a full of faith believer believes that and trusts in that when they're feeling very unloved by others or by the world. A full of faith individual will believe that God is in control and works all things together for your good and His glory. Whether you understand that or not, a full of faith individual says, I know it looks like everything is going downhill in my life. That I'm just slowly falling apart. But God has a reason. And God has a purpose. And I'm going to believe that and trust in that. That's what a full of faith person does. And finally, he has confidence that when Christ returned to heaven and said that He went to prepare a place for us, that He was telling the truth, that we have a home in heaven, that we have an eternal destiny and glory with Jesus Christ. And though life may be a struggle and a battle and an ongoing trial in this life, we have an eternity in the presence of God. And we focus on the glory yet to come. And that just fills us with grace and the Spirit of God to endure the trials of this life. On top of believing and trusting Uh, the Word of God, Christ and His promises. A full of faith individual also knows how to apply those truths to their life on a very practical level. 
They know basically how to, to talk to themselves in a biblical way. I don't know how many of y'all have read uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' uh, book, Spiritual Depression. I highly recommend it to you if you struggle with depression. But Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this book. And one of his sermons in that book is all about Psalm 42, verse 5, where the psalmist is teaching a very practical lesson of, of sanctification. And that is learning to take God's character and God's truth and preach it to ourselves and to talk to ourselves in light of God's truth rather than just listen to, listening to ourselves talk is the way he put it. Let me read the verse for you. Listen to the psalmist. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. So the psalmist is going through a very discouraging, depressing time. He's despairing. He is troubled. He is depressed. And he's listening. He had been listening to himself talk. And his flesh and his human nature is saying, oh, woe is, is me. That life is so difficult. You know, everything is turning out bad. And I'm struggling with this area of sin. I can't seem to overcome it. I'm just, everything is going, going bad in my life. And you begin to just listen to yourself talk and you go down further and further and further into this black hole of gloom and discouragement and depression. But then the psalmist kind of awakens from just listening to his fears and his anxieties and his anger filling up his mind. And he takes himself by the scruff of the neck, if you will, and he begins to to point his finger at his own heart. And he says, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Wake up. You have no reason to be disturbed. Why are you despairing? I mean, look at God. Look at His promises. Look at the blessings that He's given you. You have no reason to be all depressed and discouraged. And he actually begins to take the truth of Scripture and the character of God, and he begins to exhort himself, rebuke himself, encourage himself, preach to himself, and instead of just letting your thoughts just kind of drift along with all this negativity about woe is me and the fears and the dangers and nothing, nothing's good going to happen, you begin to speak to your soul in light of God's character and light of God's truth. That's a tremendous thing that a, that a full of faith person gets to. He starts out with a weak faith in the psalm, and now he's moving into the full of faith because he's actually now encouraging himself in light of the character of God. And, and the hope that God will, at, in His timing, will intervene. He says, hope in God. He's preaching to himself. Hope in God. Don't hope in your outward circumstances. Don't hope in man. Hope in God. Put your hope there. For I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. God is going to come and rescue me in His timing, according to His will. But I'm going to hope in that. And he just, you can just see His Spirit being lifted up out of the discouragement into a place of peace and joy again. As He remembers through the rest of the psalm, the Lord's loving kindness, which is in the daytime, 
and that his song would fill him with joy in the night. So a full of faith person lives by the word of God. They put their faith and their trust in the promises of God and the character of God. And that, I think, kind of describes a person like Stephen. I think, again, too often times we just, we just listen to ourselves moan and groan and express our own fears and anxieties and anger. And it's just like a gristmill where we just keep grinding and grinding and grinding away on all those negative thoughts. But the Word of faith person is going to be drawn back to the Word of God. And he's going to be reminded of God's faithfulness and His love and His sovereignty that controls all things for a good and holy purpose. And it puts our trust in that. And that encourages us and gives us joy. So the full of faith individual, and this is going to be true of Stephen, they will defeat the enemies of our soul. They will stand firm in the day of temptation and battle. And they will see the victory of the Lord. Same thing we read in Hebrews 11 of all those godly men and women full of faith. And and they eventually won on the battlefield. They may have died, but they won spiritually. In Hebrews 11.33, it says, "...who by faith conquered kingdoms and performed acts of righteousness and obtained promises and shut the mouths of lions." They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness, they were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead through resurrection. And others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. You see the future glory perspective that they had. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts, mountains, caves, holes in the ground. And you thought you had troubles? And you can add Stephen's name to that list. One of the men of God. One of the champions of Christ of whom this world was not worthy. Stephen's faith gave him a strong trust in the Lord and boldness to stand for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And his faith challenges us to follow suit to go to the Scripture and fill our minds with the Word of God, to know it, to believe it, and to trust in it. And then go forth in the joy of your salvation and be ready to be a useful vessel in the hands of the Master, whether you're at home or at work or at play or at school or wherever you are, because you're believing and trusting in Christ and His promises and the Word of God. Stephen was a man full of faith. It also adds, and and he was full of the Holy Spirit is the same idea. Full goes with both expressions, faith and the Holy Spirit. So that Stephen was a man full of faith, no doubt because he was full of the Spirit. Faith is a gift of God, and the Spirit is the one who gives it. Now all Christians have the Spirit dwelling in us, 
But you see, we can quench the Spirit and we can grieve the Spirit. But that was not the character of Stephen. Stephen was full of the Spirit. This speaks to his overall general character of life. Rather than saying he was just filled for a particular task, no, his character is being described here. He's a man full of the Holy Spirit. And what that actually means on a practical level is that he was a mature, godly, spiritual man. And he brought all of his relationships, all of his emotions, his ambitions, his thinking, his words, his actions under the control of the Holy Spirit. That's basically what it means to be full of the Spirit. You're under His control. And Stephen was a man who constantly sought and submitted to the leading and influences of the Spirit, not focusing on emotions or impressions of the Spirit, because the Spirit anchors His ministry in the Word of God. That's why it's called the Spirit of Truth several times in the Word. And so to be full of the Spirit means that basically you're full of the Word of God, you're, you're letting Scripture, you're letting the Spirit of God guide you on a practical day-to-day basis. And then down in verse 8, we see his character that Stephen was full of grace and power. The expression full of grace here, most commentators will say it probably refers to something like the idea of a gracious spirit. Now, God's grace is, you know, unmerited, undeserved favor of God, and that certainly undergirds this gracious spirit idea. But Stephen was a man full of grace. He had a good will towards others. Uh, He was a kind-hearted person. He had a gracious spirit and a generous spirit. His speech was seasoned with grace, as Paul exhorts the Colossians in chapter 4, verse 6. So he was a man full of grace. God's grace was flowing richly in his heart and his life, controlling his words, his thoughts, his desires, his goals. And then lastly, he was a man full of power. And that power is specifically being manifested in verse 8 by his ability to perform great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen's one of those few guys who had the gift of miracles other than the apostles. But he was kind of like an, an, an apostolic delegate and the Holy Spirit gave him that particular gift and he was doing that publicly out in front of the rest of the people. So Stephen, to wrap up his character, he, he was a, a gracious, Christ-like, godly man. He was full of faith, full of the Spirit, full of grace, full of power. And of course, he drew a lot of animosity, a fierce antagonism from those who were unbelievers. But you know, the old expression is, is that the sweetest flowers draw the most bees. And the sweetness of Christ's character on Stephen drew the most Christ-haters carrying the sting of death in their tails. And so he's going to just naturally draw enemies to him because of the sweetness of Christ, that aroma of Christ that he exudes in his life. Well, let's look at the conflict. We see that it begins in verse 9. But some men from what was called the synagogue of freedmen 
including the Cyrenians and Alexandrians. Those are two areas in northern Africa and some from Cilicia and Asia, that would be modern-day Turkey, rose up and argued with Stephen. Now, the synagogue of the freedmen, as it's referred to here, was a Greek-speaking synagogue in Jerusalem. Uh, they say that the way it originated in Jerusalem, uh, it was one of the Hellenistic Jewish synagogues, by the way, because they're speaking Greek, so they're Hellenistic. The way this came about, many say, is that Pompey, the Roman general in 63 B.C., so this is long before even Christ was born, uh, he invaded Judea and he uh, basically conquered it and he arrested and took prisoner a lot of Jews. So they became slaves and he kind of dispersed them in different parts of the Roman Empire at that time. And at some later point, those slaves were released. And so they were liberated and they were dispersed. And some of their descendants uh, later on probably came back to Jerusalem and they established these synagogues called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. Those who had been captured under Pompey, later released, and they and their descendants gravitated back to Jerusalem. They came, became kind of a band of brothers, so they had a Greek-speaking synagogue there. Uh, there could be more than one synagogue mentioned here in verse 9, but uh, basically they had a zeal for God, but like Paul says of the Jews in Romans 10, a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. So they began to argue with Stephen. But we read about in verse uh, 10 that they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So they were arguing with Stephen. Stephen, no doubt, was preaching Christ to them. But they could not refute his arguments. They could not rebut his, his, uh, his reasoning. And uh, actually, this fulfills what Jesus promised his disciples in Luke chapter 21, verse 15 when he says, I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. Well, that's being fulfilled right here in Stephen's ministry. They, they could not cope with his wisdom or the Spirit of God that was giving him these arguments. So the accusations began in verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Well, if you can't outreason your opponent, if you can't defeat his arguments, what do you do? What do you do <laughs> in, in the political realm that, we, that we've been suffering through for many months now? You, you launch a smear campaign. That's what you do. You just try to smear your opponent. And that's what they're doing here. They cannot defeat his arguments. They cannot outwit him. They cannot in any way refute him. So they're just going to start a smear campaign. So when it says in verse 11 that they secretly induced men, that word really carries the idea of bribing someone to give a false testimony about someone else. So basically, secretly induced men means that there was money going under the table and they were hiring these people to commit an unlawful act of perjury. 
So they're paying them money, good money, and uh, hiring them to bring these accusations against against uh, Stephen. You know, I, I never realized that George Soros was that old. <laughs> that his money was even influencing people way back then. But that's... Uh, so, and, and, you know, really with the uh, Judge Kavanaugh uh, hearing, so many of the demonstrators, you know, that were out there yelling and screaming, I think were hired by George Soros money. So, you know, there's really nothing new in the world. It's just kind of all just cycles its way around. But this was a serious accusation in verse 11 that Stephen was blaspheming not only against Moses, but against God because you know what the penalty for blasphemy was? It was death. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. So in verse 12, what do they do? These... Uh, Jews, Hellenistic Jews from the synagogue of the freedmen, they now stir up the people, the elders and the scribes. They came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. So they're at the temple. That's where the council met. That's where the Sanhedrin met. So now here's your mob mania again. You know, if he had been in a restaurant... They would have ran up to him and told him that he's not worthy to be there. He needs to get out. But here they, they just actually came up and grab him and they drag him away to the Sanhedrin, verse 12. So now Stephen's before the council. And we read in verse 13 that they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. So now they're putting forth false witnesses. You know, this is, uh, I think over the last couple of months, we've just seen this over and over again. It seems like in so much of our politics and the news, someone just, just outright telling a bold-faced lie. And you know, it's still kind of hard for me to understand that someone in such a public venue would just outright lie through their teeth. And, and, and not have a problem with that. You just see how their conscience is so seared. But uh, let me give you an example, not, not a contemporary example, but back in 2012, when Harry Reid uh, was the Democratic Senate Majority Leader, Harry Reid, and uh, Mitt Romney was running against President Obama uh, for the White House, and, of course, Mitt Romney was running on the Republican ticket. And Reed, Harry Reid, accused uh, Mitt Romney of not paying his taxes for 10 years. Why, well, he's just a wealthy old man. He cheats on his taxes. He, he hasn't paid his taxes for 10 years. And, of course, the news media, what did they do with it? I mean, they just picked it up like this was manna from heaven and splashed it all over the headlines. Well, Mitt Romney immediately produced his last 10 years of tax returns. So it was a complete lie from what uh, Harry Reid had said. When Reid was confronted with it, he said that he got his information from an extremely reliable source. Of course, it was an extremely wrong source, but that was his excuse. And when the interviewer kept pressing him again, 
but obviously Mitt Romney had paid his taxes for those 10 years and you were intentionally slandering him. What do you say about that? And Harry Reid just kind of with a little sly grin said, well, he didn't win the election, did he? And basically what he was admitting to, that he intentionally told this whopper because the ends justified the means. People can lie through their teeth and, and, and go to bed and sleep like a baby during the night. And that's what's happening here. They're bringing forth these false witnesses saying and accusing Stephen that this man incessantly, he never stops speaking against this holy place and the law. Well, Trump is not the first person to be a victim of fake news, but this is what's going on here. And they bring forth two fake news items. One of them, that Stephen was incessantly speaking against this holy place. Now, the temple is in view, I think. Most everybody thinks this is the temple. The house of God is in view. And specifically, verse 14 for we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. So the main accusation was that Stephen said that Jesus is going to destroy our temple. Now let's, uh, let's consider the facts. Well, Jesus did teach in the Olivet Discourse when he foretold that within one generation that the temple would be destroyed and leveled to the ground so that one stone would not be left on top of another. Matthew 24, you can read about it there. But Jesus never said that he was going to destroy it. Actually, the Romans were going to come and destroy the temple. Jesus just prophesied it. But they're claiming he said that he would destroy the temple. Now, in John chapter 2, remember early in Jesus' ministry, he said, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. Of course, he wasn't saying that he was going to destroy that temple either, but he wasn't talking about the physical temple. What was he talking about? His body. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, at Jesus' trial, and now again, that same lie is circulating at Stephen's trial, they misinterpret what Jesus said and they accuse him of claiming that he was going to destroy the temple. So they're bringing that up that Stephen was still saying that and preaching that. So what we have is basically that the accusers were repeating these false accusations that Jesus was going to destroy the temple when Jesus actually said that his physical body was going to be the new temple and replace the old temple after it's destroyed. So he was saying exactly the, the exact opposite in John 2. His body would become the new covenant temple. His body, his presence, would now become the new meeting place to where you worship God. You don't go to the temple anymore. You go to Christ. He is now the temple, His physical body. And that's why Jesus could say that something greater than the temple is here, referring to Himself. 
But that temple would not only be the physical body of Christ, which was crucified, raised from the dead, and now the new covenant temple is at the Father's right hand in glory. But it also refers to his spiritual body, which is the church. As Paul told the Corinthians, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So the church is now the temple because we're the spiritual body of Christ. So what Jesus actually taught was that He would fulfill all of the types and shadows of the old covenant temple when He installs the new covenant temple through His death and His resurrection. And of course, they didn't understand that. They don't care about knowing the truth. Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up. We often hear some people say. But the truth of the reality is that Jesus Himself was going to become the new temple. And yes, it would be destroyed too. He wouldn't destroy it. The Sanhedrin was going to destroy the temple. Not Him. The Sanhedrin would destroy the new covenant temple of the body of Christ, but then He would raise it from the dead. The Lord would raise it from the dead. And it would triumph in victory at the Father's right hand. So the old temple, yeah, it's going to be destroyed. The Romans are going to do it because the day for the old covenant's usefulness has come to an end. The animal sacrifices, the ceremonial worship of the law, all of that now is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So Christ now is bringing in a better covenant. He's a better high priest. He has a better sacrifice, a better blood, better promises, a better temple, and it will replace this old worn out temple with all of its sacrifices that Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13 says now obsolete and ready to disappear. So Stephen was not blaspheming the temple. Rather, it was the council that was blaspheming the temple, turning it into a house of merchandise and a den of thieves. The other part of the accusation is not only does he constantly speak against the temple, he's constantly speaking against the law. And obviously in this sense, we find that uh, again, Stephen is only teaching what is correct and what is truthful. They go on to add in verse 13 that Jesus would alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Now what would Jesus have said regarding that that they're accusing Him of? Well, He no doubt talked about the law and He probably reiterated much of Jesus' corrections of the man-made distortions of Mosaic laws. Jesus did that a lot. You can read in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus would take a lot of the rabbinic distortions of the law, their man-made additions, and He would rebuke them and correct that. So in that sense, He spoke against the law, not in truth, but against their distorted interpretations of the law. Remember in a, later on in Matthew chapter 15, when Jesus accused the Jews of transgressing God's commandment for the sake of their traditions. And you remember what the issue was. The fifth commandment told the Jews to honor your father and mother, but the Jews found a loophole in that commandment. And they said, well, instead of financially supporting my parents when they get old, uh, I have dedicated all my wealth and all my money to God. Korban. 
It's dedicated to God, so I can't spend it on my parents. And Jesus rebukes him and says, by this you invalidated the Word of God for the sake of your tradition. So Stephen may have been reiterating some of those things that Jesus taught of how their law, their man-made distorted laws, really distorted the true law of God. But on the other hand, of course, with the coming of the new covenant, with the coming of the Messiah, there was going to be a change in the Mosaic law, the ceremonial law in particular, and the civil laws to a certain degree. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And when He fulfilled the ceremonial law, then it relegated the whole temple and the sacrifices and all of that as something that is, that is in the past. It's in the Old Covenant. It's been retired, never to be brought up again. Because Christ brought in, you see, a new priesthood. And the Scriptures say that when you bring in a new priesthood into the, into the temple, then you have to have a change of law also. Remember Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. So Stephen was probably preaching, you know, by the way, you don't have to take your animal sacrifices to the temple anymore because Jesus fulfilled that. You don't need to do all these other things because Jesus fulfilled that. And they thought that he was speaking against the law because they didn't understand that when the new covenant came, the law certainly would be modified and changed, particularly in the ceremonial area. Christ's priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. And it relegated the Levitical Old Covenant priesthood and its laws of worship to the obsolete worship of that Old Covenant. Those were the shadows. Christ is the substance and the reality. So the ceremonial law was going to be changed forever. Well, of course, the Sanhedrin wouldn't like that at all. And so after these accusations have been brought up, before Stephen starts his amazing defense, which he's allowed in chapter 7, in verse 15 it says, "...and fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel." And that's an amazing description. But looking on, you can just imagine, you know, the Sanhedrin, they kind of sit in a semicircle. They're elevated up. And whoever's on trial is brought to the middle. And so you're facing all of these members of the Sanhedrin, 70, 71 or so. And he's right there in front of them. All of their eyes are gazing on him, just listening to these false lies and accusations brought up against him. And while they're looking on Stephen, before he begins to speak, they see that his face is transformed like the face of an angel. Well, what does that mean? Well, some, some people say that the, in this place, the, the, his face was looking like the face of an angel just means that he had a complete peaceful, contented expression on his face. Like the face of an angel. Um, that it reflects the undaunted courage and, and his steadfast commitment to Christ. And they could just see that in his face. But I think it's more than that. I think there's probably a measure of a miraculous splendor and brightness upon his countenance. Some, something like a celestial glow 
that was on his face, not unlike what Moses experienced when he came down from Mount Sinai carrying the Ten Commandments in his hand. When his face was all aglow with the, with the glory of God. And what's so interesting is that when Stephen was accused of opposing the law, God gave him the same radiant face that He gave Moses when he received the law. And it's almost as if God is endorsing very, in, in such an outward phenomenal way, His approval and endorsement of Stephen's ministry by giving him this, this face that, that glowed in the presence of the Sanhedrin. What an honor. But, but what was it that caused Moses' face to glow? It's because he'd been in the presence of God. And I think this is true of Stephen. Here's a man who had been in the presence of God. He was a man full of faith and full of the Word of God and full of the Spirit and full of grace and, and full of power. He had been a man who delighted and, and sought out times to spend in the presence of God. And here too, God is telegraphing to the council that Stephen's ministry can be trusted and believed because he too was a man who spent time in the presence of Almighty God. Stephen was a man of the Word. He was a man who delighted in fellowship with God and standing in his hour of, of trial, in his time of great distress and trouble, knowing the threat of death if they believed and, and, and uh, accused him of, of what he was, uh, uh, of the charges brought against him, the seriousness of all of that. He was a man who trusted Christ and put his trust in the promises of God. And he was a man who is full of faith and full of the Word. He was a man who had been in God's presence and his face just began to shine. Again, I think Stephen's life and character are given to us by the Spirit of God in this passage to challenge us. What kind of a life do we live in the, in the midst of this world? When trials and troubles come our way, how do we respond to them? Because when you are a man or a woman full of faith and full of the Spirit of God and someone who spends time in God's presence, it will affect the way you respond to those circumstances. It will even affect the countenance of your face when we are full of faith and full of Christ and full of the Word. So instead of walking around with a long, drawn face or someone with a scowl or someone that's always looking for someone to criticize, your countenance will reflect the sweet graciousness of Jesus Christ. I think what we see in this, what Luke through the Holy Spirit is trying to show us is an example of a man who, who walked with God. And the challenge is don't let our faith be half empty. Don't be satisfied with being half full of the Holy Spirit. But seek by God's grace to be, to be full of grace and faith in the Spirit of God. Because it will change us. 
it will transform us. And we'll be a better husband and a better wife. And we'll be a better worker. And we won't carry the grudges that we do before. And we won't have such negative uh, judgmental attitudes towards people. And we'll be able to forgive other people. And we'll be serving other people because we're transformed by spending time in the presence of Almighty God so much so that even the countenance of our faith will reflect it. The shining face of Stephen was a testimony to the grace of God in his life, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of faith that he had, being full of grace. And instead of being in such a dangerous situation, and even like Martin Luther, who on his day of trial was so rattled and so full of fear, he begged for for an extra day just to think it over. Stephen will not be that way. And the countenance of his faith just reflects the boldness, the contentment, the confidence, the willingness to give it all to Christ regardless of what might happen to him because he was committed to serve the Master. And they could see it in his face. And I would think it should have made a profound influence upon them But you see, their eyes were blind. They had no faith. They were void of the Spirit. They had no grace. And whatever they saw in Stephen, they quickly dismissed it and went right back on the attack. It's just like when Jesus was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. They came up to Him and they say, say, who do you seek? We're seeking Jesus. And He says, I am, ego me." where the Lord is actually reflecting the way God revealed Himself to Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. And Jesus said, you're looking for Jesus. I am. And at that moment, there was such a blast of His brilliance and His glory shining out of the envelope of His human nature that all of those temple guards and all those people who came to arrest Him fell flat on their face because they saw a glimpse of the glory of the Son of God. But within a matter of moments and seconds, when, when Christ again soared back in that glory and covered it over with the envelope of His humanity, those people who came to arrest Him stood right back up and proceeded to carry out the arrest and dragging Him back to Annas and then Caiaphas to be tried for what they thought was blasphemy as well. God's people who live for the Lord, will never be treated well in this world. We will never be loved. We will never be appreciated. But regardless of that, those who are full of faith and full of grace and full of the Spirit, they will stand for Christ. They will be God's man or God's woman at God's place and at God's time. And they will stand regardless Well, may God fill us with a fullness of faith like Stephen had. May He challenge us in our time of testing and trial to be full of faith, trusting in Christ and His promises that God will work it all for the good. Well, Stephen had correctly taught about the temple and the law of God that Jesus had fulfilled them both. And as the new temple, Jesus fulfills everything that the old temple pointed toward. He's a better high priest. 
He's the Passover lamb. He brings His own precious blood poured out on the mercy seat of God, which alone is able to atone for our sins. And one way to look at the Lord's Supper is what we are celebrating at this point in time now is the destruction of the temple. Not what the Romans would do later on in 70 A.D., but we are looking at the destruction of the new covenant temple when Jesus' body would be destroyed and cut down and crucified and that He would die. It would not be Jesus who destroys this temple, but the council of the ones who did it. But we celebrate the destruction of the new covenant temple and the crucifixion and death of our Lord during the supper. We celebrate the resurrection of that temple, the exaltation of that temple now at the Father's right hand, because now the temple of the new covenant is the meeting place where people come to meet. We don't go to Jerusalem anymore. Jesus told the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, there will come a time when no longer on this Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem that you'll worship the Lord. There'll be a new place. And Jesus is that new place of worship. If you want to know God, if you want the forgiveness of your sins, you must come to Him and receive it from Him. There's no other place you can go. There's no other holy ground. The holy ground now, the temple of the new covenant, is Jesus Christ, now glorified at the Father's right hand. And we celebrate the destruction of His temple because it was through the destruction of the temple that the true blood of the Lamb was, was shed so that the true forgiveness could be purchased and paid for. And so we come to worship God for giving us the gift of His Son who now is our new temple around whom we come to to worship. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I would remind you that this is the Lord's Supper and not the Supper of Northwest Bible Church. So in other words, we invite every believer, whether you're a member of this church or not, that you've placed your faith and trust in Christ alone to save you from your sins, to examine your heart, confess any sin that the Spirit brings to your conscience, and then partake freely. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Christ, then please let the elements pass you by. Consider that you're a sinner, that the day of judgment is coming, and you will stand before the righteous judge of the universe and give an account And without the blood of the Lamb covering you and saving you and washing you white as snow, you will be cast into hell forever. Repent. Flee from your sin. Come to Christ. He opens His arms to receive any and every sinner that comes to Him. Come. Because there's salvation in no one else. We break unleavened bread because it best reminds us that Jesus Himself had no sin. So He could die as our substitute and bear our sins and save us from the penalty that they deserve. Well, let's give thanks for the bread. Our Father, we do thank You for this uh, wonderful reminder that we celebrate every month 
of the cost that Jesus was willing to pay to save poor sinners like us from the damnation that we deserve. And we thank You for this blessed body, this holy temple that was willing to go and be destroyed and sacrifice and die on the cross that He might perform the true ministry of the new covenant high priest and offer His own blood as the only blood able to satisfy the justice of God's law so that any sinner, no matter how wicked they've been, but who by the grace of God repent and trust in Christ can find complete and total forgiveness and everlasting life. So Father, draw our thoughts to Christ. He's the meeting place. And may we meet with Him and worship Him and praise Him. We ask it in His name. Amen. The ushers would please uh, come forward. We'll pass the bread. Feel free to partake whenever you are ready spiritually. Or you can hold it till the end and we'll partake. So Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body, he says. Reflect upon the symbol of the body temple being sacrificed for us. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 these words, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Shall I partake? As we pass the cup, I would remind you that this is the cup of the new covenant in the blood of Christ. This is celebrating that by God's grace, we enjoy the blessings of the new covenant because Jesus inaugurated that covenant by His shed blood on Calvary's cross. And it's interesting that through the shedding of His blood, you don't need to cleanse the temple of the new covenant. It's already holy and blameless. But we needed to be cleansed. And it's His precious blood that washes away our stain, our guilt, our condemnation. So the church as the temple needs to be cleansed, but His blood did it. So as we celebrate the new covenant that we are in, I would remind you that we have wine on the outside row of each tray and juice in the inner rows so that you can partake in accordance with your own conviction. But the blood... The cup is to represent the blood. And the blood was shed because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So it should bring a a note of joy to our hearts that reminds us of the shed blood of our Savior through which we have complete forgiveness of our sins. If the uh, ushers would please pass the cup. And since we are one body of Christ... Please hold the cup until all have been served. As a sign of unity, we'll partake together.